Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue that takes a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Stiley, your co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. Our goal for Polylog is to look at the policy and the framing of various instances of political journalism. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Monday, June 13th, 2022, and while our family's still bonding with our new baby boy, I'm excited to bring you part 11 of my Solving Guns project. This is a multi-part series we're sharing first with our Polylog listeners, a project I've spent years on to examine every form of gun violence, to go deep on the reasons why people own guns in the first place, and to find solutions without passing laws. Not because laws are a bad idea or a good idea, but because gun control laws are not solving this issue right now. Whether you love guns or hate them, my hope is that the solutions here can unite those on the left and the right behind one goal— to save lives, something we can all agree on. You can find this project with written versions and some videos online at solvingguns.org. You can also access the 2,000-plus pages of facts and statistics that I leaned on for this project. So, part 11. This part continues our discussion of mass shootings, And last week we spoke about the role of the media. This week we're going to talk about the day of shootings themselves and what we can do to make those moments safer and hopefully save lives. So let's begin. So all this time in the previous discussions while we've been talking about mass shootings, we've been talking about shooters who shoot for reasons of fame and notoriety, shooters who plan their shooting meticulous, careful, committed enough to take trips across the country to learn more about their shooting heroes. But what about shooters who shoot reflexively? The angry spouse who goes on a rampage or the factory worker who's just been fired. What can we do to stop the shooter who first thinks to shoot on the day of the shooting itself? This is hard to prevent, because the less time there is between the first step of planning and the last step of shooting— is the less time we have to get between those two steps and stop it. But even day of shootings have their warnings, even if the first warning is warned with a bang, the first shot fired. Did you know that before two of the three deadliest shootings, those outliers on our graph, there was a first shot fired somewhere else? A first shot fired either miles or hours before? In the Virginia Tech shooting, the shooter, a student, killed someone in his dorm room early, early in the morning. The dorm was on campus. The shooter was loose, but notification never made it out in time. And so the students, all the while the shooter was planning his shooting, stalking the campus, the students woke up that morning, clutched coffee, packed their bags, and ascended the stairs to their second-floor classroom. They chatted and milled about before the professor arrived. They exchanged friendly hellos. All the while, police knew there had been a shooting on campus. All the while, this spinning vortex of a shooter spun towards them. And it was a few minutes later, while they sat in their classroom learning French, hours after that first shot was fired, that the first notification was sent out. By email. In an age before smartphones. But it was too late. The shooter was already in the building. The exits chained shut. What the hell? The campus knew, and nothing was done. 
The police knew, and nobody was saved. So here's an idea. Let's do something when there's a shooting nearby. Let's treat shooters like tornadoes. The moment a shot is fired, you batten down the hatches. Classes are suspended, businesses shut down, and extra security floods in. Those classes on that day should have been canceled. The university should have shut down. There was an active shooter at large. Someone had already been killed. This didn't have to happen. 32 lives lost. But we can take this even further, because nearby isn't near enough. The shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary, that one didn't start at Sandy Hook either. It started at home, as so many shootings start, including the one in Uvalde, Texas. But at Sandy Hook, the shooting crept out from the home, like a flame climbing up the branches of a tree. The distance between the home and the school at Sandy Hook, five miles. You have to take Riverside Road, make a right onto Philo Curtis Road, turn left onto Jeremiah Road, then a right onto Bennett Bridge, a left on Bresson Farm Road, and then, well, you get the idea. It's not a straight line, but you can draw a straight line from the shooter to the target. Sandy Hook is where the shooter's mother worked. It's not enough, then, to batten down the hatches nearby. We have to get those schools and workplaces that are connected to the killer to batten down their hatches, too. Because shooting after mass shooting, one thing emerges. Public mass shootings often start in private, when a boyfriend, spouse, or family member turns violent. That violence at home then spills over into the workplace, school, or other public space. The moment a shooting is registered in private and the shooter is at large, a warning should be sent out to every institution that may be a potential target. The shooter's place of business? Yes. Place of learning? Yes. Place of worship? Yes. The warning can instruct the institution to shut down, evacuate, or simply go on security alert. How do we achieve this? Social media integration. Social media has already mapped all of these connections for us, every branching tendril of social networks. In fact, that's what social networks are, networks. So if one node in that network goes berserk, those around that network, close by relationship, but maybe not necessarily close by proximity, those who are in those networks should be alerted. Family, friends, coworkers, and importantly, coworkers of family. There are already online systems that capture real-time police scanner data. We only need social networks to integrate this information into their social graph in order to send out warnings and safety announcements, in time, of course, for people to do something about it. Okay, so this helps prevent day of shootings that start at the home, but what about those shootings that begin at work? Well, we know that most workplace shootings have a trigger. And we know what that trigger is, firings and suspensions. 60% of all shootings at factory workplaces, which by the way, is the number one location where active shootings take place, 60% were the direct result of a firing. Take the case of the Newwood Decorative Millwork Plant in Goshen, Indiana. When a 36-year-old was fired in December of 2001, he left the facility and then, later that day, returned with a gun. He shot seven of his co-workers, wounding six and killing one before turning the gun on himself. Now, some companies know that firings can be sensitive, so they have security escort an employee off the premises. But that wouldn't have worked here, would it? 
because after the escort, he would have just come back with his gun, as he did. Coming back is an issue. It isn't just an edge case. It happens all the time. Someone is fired or suspended, they leave work, and before the day is up, they return to target their coworkers. The answer? How about simply working the calendar a bit here? How about pushing these companies to adopt a new best practice? Only fire or suspend workers after all others have safely left the premises. This could mean saving it until after hours, or letting all workers leave early, or yes, walking the individual out with armed security, but then also posting that armed security at the doors for a week or two after the firing. If that's too expensive to do for every single firing, then companies can batch firings and suspensions together. But something as simple as this, having some sort of strategy and timeline for firings and suspensions, scheduling them off hours and using basic security best practices, can save lives. If factories had these policies in place over the last 15 years, we could have saved 30 lives. But, I hear you saying, but what about shootings that take place anyway? Ones that fall through the cracks of all these efforts at reduction. Or... What about that swath of shootings that take place in broad public arenas, like stores, crowds, and the street? Stores are the second most likely location for a shooting to take place, and a surprising number of active shooter incidents take place on the street, when an assailant begins randomly shooting as he walks from block to block, rounding corners where unsuspecting pedestrians are caught off guard. What can we do to save lives? Well, this exact problem faced the cities of Europe during World War I, because there was a new threat, aircraft. Silence, stillness, and then a screaming comes across the sky. Weapons considerably more terrifying than anything known before, zeppelins. When the dull roar filled the air in the small coastal British town of Great Yarmouth in the cold of January 1915, nobody knew what it was until the streets of the tiny hamlet exploded. The city had become the first victim of a new campaign by Germany to target civilians in the British countryside. A new campaign and a new kind of warship, the Zeppelin, a massive ship with tons of capacity for bombs, 536 feet 5 inches long and 61 feet in diameter. It could travel as fast as 85 miles an hour, in a time when the fastest battleships could only travel around 30 miles an hour. And these zeppelins would attack in the dead and darkness of night, under cover of the clouds. A new technology, then, needed to be invented. That technology was called war tubas. They looked ridiculous, but their principal purpose was serious, to listen for the telltale frequency of an aircraft engine. There had been nothing like this before, because as aircraft grew in power and precision, so too did these listening devices. The British began setting up permanent acoustic mirrors, 15-foot-tall monoliths of concrete. They'd be installed in three pieces, with microphones at the focal point designed to triangulate a sound far across the English Channel, so that as soon as an aircraft began its journey towards Britain, the early warning systems would light up across the coast, and defenses drawn. The technology has gone a long way from there. Beginning about 25 years ago, they started mounting this type of technology in cities to cut down on crime. It's estimated that in some particularly rough neighborhoods, only about a quarter of all the gunshots fired are ever reported, 
With specially tuned microphones mounted around town, first responders are able not only to detect gunfire, but actually to triangulate its location, down to the exact address, sending in police and ambulances to stop the violence and rescue victims who may already be bleeding. Now, nearly every major city in America has gunshot listening devices. Los Angeles, New York, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C. alone said in 2008 that it helped them save 62 victims and led to nine arrests. Today's technology uses state-of-the-art neural networks to distinguish gunshots from other loud noises like fireworks, backfiring cars, and falling pianos. But the key, of course, is the same as it's always been. Just like war tubas, the key is listening. Of course, we use technology for listening all the time. Microphones for singers, for radio show hosts, for interviewing subjects on TV, and even in our smartphones. Actually, most smartphones have two microphones, one for talking on the phone and one for recording video that is on the back of the phone. These microphones are pretty great. They might not be studio quality, but movie studios are taking note. In the Oscar-winning film Selma, David Oyelowo actually recorded some of his voiceover work as Martin Luther King Jr. with an iPhone. So what if every phone had the capability to detect a gunshot? And the moment it did, a warning was instantly sent out to other phones in the area to warn people of the danger. Just imagine it. A gun is fired, the bullet rips through the air, breaking the sound barrier. And between the pop of the muzzle and the snap of the air, phones nearby register it. Their microprocessors spark at 600 billion operations a second, sending at the speed of light a warning to other devices in the immediate vicinity. So that before the sound of the first bullet reaches the ears of the person in the next room, their phone is already pinging. The tech can work using Wi-Fi and Bluetooth, for instance, signaling to phones nearby, so it works even if you have a spotty signal. The range of Bluetooth 5.0 is now 800 feet, so there's plenty of time to seek cover. The message can look something like a pinpoint map of the gunshot location. Imagine if, using the gyroscope, compass, and GPS built into every phone already, you could see a red arrow pointing in the direction of the gunshot. But how would the phone know the direction if it's just one phone? Well, because if every phone has this technology, the phones can talk to each other. And just as multiple detectors work to triangulate gunshots in a city, multiple phones can triangulate the location of a gunshot, pinpoint it, and broadcast that location to every phone in the area. How big is this area? Well, it can extend beyond the range of Wi-Fi and Bluetooth, of course. If there's a cell signal, the warning can be sent out to everyone within a mile of the shot. And it can also auto-generate a message to be sent to local police and first responders. This might sound like science fiction, but if you can use your phone to catch an Uber, we can use our phones to dodge bullets. A paper by David Welsh and Nirmalia Roy of the Information Systems Department at the University of Maryland tested the accuracy of using smartphones as mobile gunshot detection systems. Rather than just using the microphone, they combined the microphone with every other sensor in the phone. Microphone, accelerometer, gravity, gyroscope, light sensor, linear acceleration, magnetic field, orientation, pressure, proximity. They wrote, not only can gunshots be detected, but the sensors are able to capture enough unique data to accurately classify them. 
So when you combine all the sensor data from a single phone, the classification accuracy reached 99.6% for both slow and fast shooting instances. With multiple phones networked together, the accuracy would be a virtual certainty. And that's without any changes to phone hardware at all. That's right. We don't have to make new phones. Our phones can already do this. They have the technology. They just need the software. Because the microphones, the gyroscopes, the networking, the radios, all of it's already there. All we need is a handful of companies to get on board. Apple, Google, Samsung, LG. Just create a partnership, a consortium aimed at saving lives. And believe me, we'd save lives. Those 77 people killed in open spaces in the FBI's database, the next 77 might be saved. The 20 people killed in stores, the next 20 people might be saved. And the next and the next. We can draw down the death toll on nearly every type of mass public shooting. But you know what? It wouldn't stop there. Because victims of other types of gun violence could also have a fighting chance. Imagine people who get shot in other instances, for other reasons, in other types of violence, getting the warning. And not only that, that warning being sent to first responders to get to them to help them immediately. And the perpetrators? Well, they'll have less of a chance of getting away with it. Now, there might be a few objections. What if the shooter turns off his phone? No problem, because those being shot won't have their phones turned off. Okay, well, what if you're at a gun range or a place where it's perfectly fine to be firing a gun? No problem. Just turn off your phone's detection system for an hour, two hours, a day even. But after a certain period, it turns back on by default. Places like gun ranges can also have their geolocation pre-marked so that phones in those geofenced areas are trained not to send false alarms. What if you get a message that there was a shot a mile away? And what if you get these messages all the time? Won't it freak you out, causing insecurity and a deep-seated fear for your own neighborhood? Well, we can build a messaging system into the framework so that after first responders have checked out the scene, an update message is sent to all users who receive the warning, giving them a sentence or two of detail and assuring them it's all clear. Just imagine what a system like this could do to reduce gun casualties. And it's all right there. The technology is in your pocket right now, ready for progress. There's another thing we can do beyond warning people that a gun has been fired in their vicinity, and that is preparing people. What should you do when it's taking place? When should you run? When should you stay and try to warn others? Where and how should you hide? And when is it the best option to fight back? These are all really important questions, and there are best practices out there for dealing with them. But many people don't know the answer. Many are unprepared for such an incident. Slowly, that's changing. The FBI has developed video training to help prepare people for what to do. Large companies, universities, and other places of learning are beginning to make the video standard viewing. Hundreds of thousands of students every year are being run through training programs. Just as instructions before your flight can prepare you for the unlikely event of a plane crash, video instructions can help people prepare for the unlikely event of an active shooter attack. At the time of this writing, it's actually more likely to be in an active shooter incident than for your commercial airplane to go down. According to a recent study published in the Journal of Threat Assessment and Management, college students who saw an active shooter preparedness video felt, on average, about 30% more prepared for an incident. But the video did increase fear by about the same amount. 
the effect was greatest on female participants, who felt nearly twice as prepared after watching the video, but 30% more fearful. The research authors suggest that a less graphic video and less graphic training might be more effective in preparing students and assuaging fear. After all, some schools go as far as staging active shooter training drills, complete with student actors, toy guns, and fake blood. As the researchers noted, quote, There is a reason that airlines do not routinely run passengers through simulations of a plane crash, or have them watch videos of screaming passengers putting on oxygen masks as their plane goes down. The risk of a plane crash is so minimal that it doesn't warrant that level of emotional trauma. It invokes feelings of terror that would make no one want to ride on a plane again. End quote. We could take a cue from the training videos of airlines, which are getting more stylized and less frightful by the day. So how about this? We engage young filmmakers to develop creative approaches to active shooter safety. Make it a rite of passage for aspiring directors, producers, and actors to get together and develop a visually compelling, engaging, and ultimately thoughtful video. Just as every young actor learns a Shakespeare monologue, every pianist learns how to play Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata, every filmmaker can create one of these public service announcements. Have a contest or awards program each year to judge favorites, some animated, some in sign language or performed by mimes, some done through magic, others performed on stage, an endless stream of potential videos for educators, businesses, and organizations to choose from, and every so often, a video that goes viral and launches a new career. The goal, remember, is not to make fun of this danger or of the chance of somebody being hurt, but to reach people to prepare them, but not to scare them because scaring them might make it less effective. Preparation doesn't stop at education. Part of it is also preparing people to fight back when possible. It's a maddening cliché at this point. The only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. But it's true that in some instances, guns have stopped active shooter incidents. But so is pepper spray, a piece of furniture, or simply a shouted command. So maybe part of preventing active shooter incidents is to make tools like pepper guns as common as fire extinguishers. In fact, you could put them in the same places you find fire extinguishers, in every classroom, at least every hallway, so that the moment shots are fired, people are ready to break the glass and take down the shooter. Pepper guns are a great option here, since they are non-lethal and don't even have any long-term side effects, but they can incapacitate a shooter. Even better, by putting them behind the same glass as fire extinguishers, we can rig them with alarms that sound whenever that glass is broken, alerting others outside of earshot of the gun that these people should seek cover. Training on how to use pepper guns can be built directly into the training video. Now, I can think of a few scenarios here where, where a shooter tries to maneuver around this. Maybe he tries to remove all the pepper guns before opening fire. But guess what? The moment he does, the alarm sounds. And, if they're as numerous as fire extinguishers, he won't be able to remove them all before getting stopped. Maybe a shooter realizes that pepper guns are being used to stop him, and he has to wear a mask. Okay, but that mask is yet another barrier in the way of becoming and acting on a shooting impulse. And masks can restrict movement and impede vision, so the shooter will probably be less effective. And wearing or even carrying a mask will make the shooter easier to spot, easier to avoid and get away from, and ultimately easier for first responders to identify in order to stop. And pepper guns can be only part of the defense. Other options can be added in their place. Pepper guns, by the way, also serve another purpose, reducing fear. 
In the same way that having an alarm system at your house reduces your fear of a break-in, or a security guard reduces fear of a robbery, a defensive device can put people's minds at ease that even if something were to happen, they'd be ready and able to stop it. But let's say you have advance warning. Let's say you have all the training in the world, but there's no emergency exit to get away through, or the door you're trying to lock behind you won't lock, or the pathway is blocked. What then? What can we do to make spaces safer? That'll be our discussion next week. In the meantime, you can learn more at solvinggguns.org. If you have any thoughts or feedback, you can email us at podcast at polylog.com. You can tweet at me at bstyle. You can tweet at Naomi at sotoNaomi underscore. And you can tweet at the show at polylogcast. Thanks, everyone, for joining me on this journey through the Solving Guns project. And we will talk with you again next week. Bye.